All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm t- talking to you from uh, Queens in the borough of Queens, New York City, on the 22nd day of December, 2020. And I do want to take advantage of this day to wish all of my friends of, of various faiths and non-faiths, whatever, a Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah and a Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a happier New Year than the very eventful 2020 was. Uh, it's been a very difficult year, um, but we're going to do our best to get to get through the end of it and uh, hopefully look for better times in 2021. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this show and um, make this show one of the more popular shows in Voice America Business Channel. Also, uh, also, to remind you that I published a newsletter called Mining, uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to miningstocks.com to sign up for that. And it is a good time, for sure, to be invested in the exploration sector, the gold and silver exploration sector. Uh, some very, very exciting things happening, and I'll tell you about one of them in just a moment. I'd also like to encourage you to consider signing up for Chen Lin's letter, uh, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Really doing extremely well with some biotech stocks, a couple of which I'm starting to follow myself. Very interesting stories. Uh, Chen has done excellent, has done really, really well in that sector, and he passes that on to his subscribers at ChenPicks. Uh, go to ChenPicks.com. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? And Michael Oliver is with us today. We're really pleased about that. It's OliverMSA.com to sign up for his letter, the best technical letter that I've ever read and ever Subscribe to it's really it's really great it's very very helpful at least for me as a person who isn't um, a real short term trader I do make trades from time to time uh, and I'm not just strictly a buy and hold guy but uh, to know which side of the market is going up and which side is going down over the longer run is very very helpful uh, and Michael is just uh, the best I've ever seen uh, in helping in that regard um, also. I uh, want to thank our sponsors because without them there would be no show. Uh, today's sponsors, Benchmark Metals, NV Gold, Cassiar Gold Corp, Hannon Metals, uh, Irving Resources, Noble Resources, Sitka Gold Corp, Lion One Metals, and SK Mining Corp. And speaking of SK Mining, the stock has exploded upwards earlier this morning up by 44% today on some fantastic drill results uh, from its SK project, the VMS deposit in British Columbia that uh, Quentin Henning told us about a few weeks back, and uh, that is one you're going to want to keep your eyes on. I think it's it's down a little bit from its highs now as the gold price has backed off and the uh, equity markets, uh, at least the precious metals markets, uh, have backed off a bit from their highs earlier this morning. 
but this is a real deal. I think that you're going to see SK Mining uh, be a name that you hear a lot more about on this show going forward. Uh, also performing well today is Sitka Gold, uh, which has completed its drill projects in the Yukon, and Corwin Co. will be with me in the second segment of today's show to give us an update not only on that company's Yukon project, but also on projects in Arizona and Nevada that uh, the company is working on and is drilling uh, this year and will be into next year, presumably. Well, after um, President Nixon closed the gold window in 1971, the U.S. dollar retained its value despite massive expenditures undertaken uh, by the U.S. to expand its empire. The dollar retained its value through diplomatic arrangements with Saudi Arabia, Arabia uh, to force nations around the world to pay for oil uh, in dollars. So in to, to enforce that, the U.S. military was used in countries like Iraq and Libya. Uh, it has seemed since that fateful August 15, 1971 date when Richard Nixon took gold away from the dollar that we have created an infinite number of dollars and it seems as though that could go on forever. But Lynn Alden, who will be with me in the second half of today's show, uh, says that built into the petrodollar system is a self-decaying mechanism that is now suggesting the dollar's days may be numbered. And it is certainly very interesting to note that last week's main guest, Alistair McLeod, has written an extremely important essay uh, titled, The Next Dollar Problems Problem Has Just Arrived. The Next Dollar Problem Has Just Arrived. And uh, I would suggest that... Uh, that you, that you definitely want to read that article, um, you can quickly go and, and um, find the link to that article by going to miningstocks.com. Alistair spells out the market mechanics that, that is showing that the number of dollars now being created is starting to explode dramatically higher, suggesting the start of a hyperinflation of the currency may now be getting underway. In fact, he points out that M1 has grown 14%, 14%. Not 14% per annum, 14% over a two-week period uh, the last two weeks. So this is something really, I think, of concern uh, and you should keep an eye on. A hyperinflated currency is by no means anything to celebrate. I don't care how high gold goes. The, uh, the chaos that will surround anything like a hyperinflation is not, is not something anybody in their right mind would hope for. But it's better to be aware of it before anything else, before everyone else catches on because I'm telling you, when, uh, when the masses start to figure this out, it's going to be like trying to force Niagara Falls through a garden hose. It's just you, you want to be there before the masses figure it out. I'm not sure that Lynn, uh, Lynn Alden views the dollar in such dramatic terms as Alistair does right now, but we'll, we'll ask her about that, certainly. Uh, but certainly uh, we will talk to her about that and many other issues. And as I mentioned, Corwin Co will, will be with me right after the first uh, commercial break. But right now I'm really happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. You know, it's um, really good to hear your voice every other week um, and um, to hear where you think things are going. And I know that one of the things that I've been watching pretty carefully uh, in part because Lynn Alden has talked to us about it, and uh, you know, Al actually, Alistair McLeod is suggesting that Bitcoin's recent dramatic rise has got to have something to do with this, with the uh, a growing understanding, perhaps among millennials, that we that the dollar's days are numbered, or at least the dollar is going to just expand infinitely, almost, to try to finance all the stuff the government tries to finance. Um, 
And so I bought some Bitcoin, and you know it's it's just crazy to watch it. I mean, uh, CBGT is the uh, uh, is the trust that holds it, uh, and it's it's very exciting. Uh, but I'd like to hear what you have to say because I know you were very timely on it. I remember you put a put out a piece that was very timely, uh, and people who bought it then have done very well. But what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? And then maybe just talk to us about gold and the dollar and anything else that might uh, you think is important. Well, well, Bitcoin is sort of philosophically and economically an interesting phenomenon because, I mean, it is a competitor to uh, statist currencies, uh, and that could be its problem. Uh, it's a, it, that's its virtue, but it also could be its problem. Uh, we MSA has called the major turns in Bitcoin very well. We called the top when it came out, started trading. We said it would collapse to five thousand. At that time, it was twenty thousand. In fact, it went to thirty-two hundred. And when it came up out of the hole at about just above 5,000, we went long-term bullish again. And we've had some secondary buy signals on the way up. And now it's, you know, it's back to the highs and slightly new highs. Fine. Um, it doesn't have a lot of history. So people who say, oh, yeah. it's doing better than gold. Well, it depends on what point in time you want to measure. <laughs> if you go back to when Bitcoin came on the board in December 2017 on the CME as a futures contract, uh, it's gained some ground. Okay. Uh-huh. But it's, it came back to where it was, and now it's got, gotten above it. Gold's had, had an enormous percent move from that same point in time in late mm-hmm. 2017. So it depends on when you want to measure. You know, day-to-day oh, sure. is not good. There's simply not enough history to make a, a macro-technical assumption about Bitcoin going to be stronger than gold. My concern, and there are others uh, in the, the gold, pro-gold arena, uh, I, I don't want to speak for him, but uh, Fleckenstein, for example, and there's others who have some skepticism about the vi- ultimate viability of Bitcoin. For, and there's one reason that I'm concerned about, and that is if, in fact, cryptocurrencies do rise in terms of the percent usage of cryptocurrencies globally by the public, by industry, etc., uh, they become a competitor to central bank issued paper and therefore if they become a competitor of, of, of gravitas you know enough percentage then central bank monetary and, and interest rate policies become less and less important because the, their currencies aren't as important to the world and to the right. trading community and so in effect you're you're attacking the viability of government currencies. And at some point, my suspicion is the statists will not put up with it. If it ever becomes a threat on a percentage basis to their policy, the wave effects of their policy, uh, they'll do a Roosevelt on it, mm-hmm. meaning ban it, turn your mm-hmm. gold in, okay? Um, and I, because of the nature of cryptocurrencies, I think they can access it. And, and actually take steps to curtail it. I defy them to ever attempt to do that to gold again. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would. That's not an option uh, that the public would put up with. Mm. Um, but, but the cryptocurrencies, because they are focused and you know they're on the net and so forth, and I think probably the governments would have a way of regulating or sidelining. The, the cryptocurrencies. I don't. This is speculation on my part, but I can see that cryptocurrencies could be a threat to government monetary policy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, no, and therefore, may, they, 
be they, they may want to use them themselves. They may want to use them themselves. Yeah, yeah and they may want to co-opt it. And, okay, you get a U.S. cryptocurrency. In fact, uh, right. the Fed has been mentioning this. Yeah. So, uh, well, yeah, I guess, that's I guess, something... Go ahead. Yeah, 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 I was just going to say, I guess one of the uh, objections to what you're saying I hear from some of the younger folks is they don't think the government can crack down. But I don't know. I mean, yeah. governments can do almost anything they want. They certainly have the ability, I would yeah. think, to crack down. But, you know, I, I don't yeah. know. I'm, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's something to think about, uh, whereas I don't think this day and age uh, you can do a Roosevelt on the gold market. If yeah, you and did, why I is that, Michael? Have... Because, because it seems to me, I mean, uh, what percentage of the American public own gold? I don't know. It, uh, it doesn't strike me as though it's a it's, large... it's a growing percent. Let me put it that yeah. way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's a yeah. growing percent, including people who aren't even gold people. Yeah. I bet George well, Soros owns a ton of gold. Okay? Oh, for sure. But George Soros may be running the government <laughs> yeah. as far as we know. So he, he, he may and, say, and, I want your gold, too. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, anyway I, I feel more secure with gold and silver. In fact, I think silver is going to be the leader over the next couple of years. And our, our view of gold is that uh, you've probably now seen the corrective low, the pullback low. And in the case of silver, you've seen the bottom end of the range low because it really – it had multiple sell-offs in silver, but they all went to the same place and stopped. They never continued down. Uh, and I think that the silver action last week and gold have set the stage now for the balance of power to shift the other way back to the upside, meaning the intermediate correction has done its thing. And the next step is to emerge from this clump of ink and put on the next leg. Mm-hmm. And unlike prior bull markets in gold that lasted oh, you know, five and ten years, I think that due to other macroeconomic and, and technical factors in other markets like the dollar, stock markets, bond markets, that gold could v- very well approach the underside of $10,000 an ounce in a year and a half. Wow. Wow. So and I guess silver, maybe you're... Uh, you, can, you can speculate where silver might be, but it could be hundreds of dollars an ounce. I, I think that the lid is going to come off big time. We're not oh. going to have a regular bull market. Mm-hmm. Well, then you might be uh, more in uh, Alistair McLeod's camp, uh, seeing the wheels coming off this wagon fairly rapidly and fairly soon. Uh, I hope and pray that's not the case, but it is what it is, and we want to be ready for it as much as possible. Uh, In 30 seconds, Michael, can you just uh, give me an idea? You, You put out something pretty bullish on oil, I think, this week. Well, oil is among, actually, we're not all that bullish. We're bullish on oil. We're bullish on natural. We're bullish on almost all commodities now. They uh-huh. all turn corners. So is the Bloomberg Commodity Index. Uh, what we really like in the energy sector are some of the oil sector ETFs, uh, oil services, oil gas exploration ETFs, uh, mm. as it, in terms of what we think their percent gain could be over a short-term period of time. So as oil is turned up now, into uh, a positive trend, uh, it's not going to gain the kind of percentages that these extremely beat-up oil sectors have suffered. I mean, you've taken sectors to like 5% of their value compared mm-hmm. to five years ago, that kind of thing. It, they, they've like crashed them off the page. It's like, oh, we don't need oil services anymore. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the vacuum effect alone, technically speaking, could drive some of these ETFs up, uh, you know, 100, 200%. And I hate mm-hmm. to tell you what that would do to some call options. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, so, uh, if yeah, you own them, I, you don't I, hate I, it. We, we are yeah. excited about oil, but primarily oil sector ETFs, meaning okay. the companies. Okay. Very good. Very good point. 
All right, Michael, we'll have to leave it go with that. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your ideas with us. Always a, always a pleasure to have you, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you in another couple of weeks. Thank you, Jay. All righty. Um, folks, we do have to go to break, but Corwin Coe will be with me. He is uh, the CEO of Sikago Corp, and uh, so we'll be right back uh, with Corwin to talk about three of his projects, actually four, I think it is, uh, in uh, Canada and the United States that are doing very well. So we'll be right back with Corwin Co. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Benchmark Metals is an advanced gold-silver exploration company that is rapidly advancing its Canadian gold-silver project to a production decision. Benchmark is nearing completion of its largest program to date with up to 100,000 meters of resource expansion and definition drilling in 2020. The multi-million ounce potential project is expected to have a new mineral resource estimate and PEA study completed in 2021. The company is backed by the Metals Group management team and believes this aggressive program will be complemented by one of the strongest commodity bull markets in decades. Visit BenchmarkMetals.com and subscribe to follow their success. Cassiar Gold Corp. trades on the OTCQB under the symbol CGLCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GLDC. Its flagship asset, the Cassiar Gold Project, is a large advanced stage road-accessible gold property with an NI43-101 compliant resource estimate of 1 million ounces at 1.43 grams per ton gold at the Taurus near-surface bulk tonnage gold deposit and 15 kilometers of high-grade gold prospects. The property hosts several past-producing high-grade gold mines and is in search for the next multi-million ounce gold camp in British Columbia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Corwin Coe. Uh, Corwin is the CEO and a member of the board of directors of Sitka Gold Corp., uh, and he is a geologist. He's uh, had many years of experience uh, looking for precious metals, and he's in the uh, in the hunt for at least four projects that their Sitka is operating, uh, is exploring and developing uh, this year. Uh, Sitka Trades in Toronto, SIG is a symbol there. You can buy it down here in the States as I have under the symbol SITKF. 57.2 million shares, 18 cents in Canadian money. I'm looking on my screen now in U.S. money, about 15 cents. Um, It gives it a market cap of around, well, I guess in Canadian money, around $10 million, something like that. So um, thanks uh, thanks for joining me again, Cor. It's really good to have you with me. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, it's a different uh, environment than the last time we talked where uh, the power outage uh, happened and uh, (laughs) 
I wasn't able to get on online with you there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You had a big storm up there, and uh, we had to cancel. Um, a- anyway, um, you, so you've got three. Uh, you've, there were three projects that I know about, and you're telling me there's a fourth one uh, in the UK. Well, okay, so you've got the RC property uh, and another and another project called the OGI property in the Yukon. And it correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the you, you love all your children, you love all your properties, but I think the one you were most excited about was RC Gold. Uh, but talk to us about what's going on in the Yukon with those two properties and what you've accomplished this year and what you hope to do next year. Yeah, Dave. So first off, we've uh, had four drill programs uh, this year, one in mm-hmm. our property in Nevada, one in Arizona at Burrow Creek, um, a major one at RC Gold, and then the newly acquired OGI property also in the Yukon. Um, we've been focused on the Yukon for the last few months. And we finally got all of our uh, drill results back, and we've got a, a, a spectacular gold discovery there that uh, it's just uh, got us very excited. We ended up putting four drill holes into an area over a two-kilometer length, and they all came back with gold from surface all the way to the bottom of the hole with grades that were um, uh, comparable to uh, Victoria Gold's uh, property that just went in production up there. Uh, we had some some grades like 59 meters of 0.88 grounds per ton, 100 meters of 0.82, um, and and interestingly enough, we even had high grade. One of the holes bottomed in in two meters of 16.1 grounds per ton gold. Mm. So mm. Uh, high grade component there too. But I think what's um, to put this in perspective, this gold find. Uh, this is an intrusion-related identified uh, target. And uh, on our northern property is a deposit called the Red Mountain uh, Deposit. And I was involved with that when they initially drilled that. And it had a gold anomaly of around 100 PPD gold and about a 300-meter by 100-meter footprint. This target that we've got has over 500 PPP gold anomaly Mm. that stretches at least two kilometers and it's 500 meters wide. So for us Mm. to stick four holes in there and end up with these kind of values, it just just shocked us and we realized we've got something that potentially could be very large. So yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're excited about the RC Gold property, absolutely. So you're looking at a at a bulk mineable target, I guess. It, it really looks like it could be very, very large if there's continuity there, uh, but with some potential for high grade underneath, possibly. Exactly, exactly. Now these holes, uh, we put these four holes in. They went down about 300 meters on an average, um, and they were they were angled around 45 to 55 degrees. They also um, followed the topography from the top of the mountain down. So when you're at the bottom of one of these holes um, and you're 300 meters from surface, you're, from the drill collar, you're only around 100 meters from surface because the, oh. the mm-hmm. drops off in both directions. So this is an open pitable, potentially open pitable oh. environment. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that's very significant. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Low stripping ratio. Um, yeah. Uh, so... All right, so what about the OGI then in the Yukon? So the OGI, we moved in there in September and uh, and drilled four drill holes into a, a, a zinc-silver 
anomaly that has the indications of potentially being a sedex type deposit. Um, it never had any drilling before. There's been a little bit of trenching done, but that was not very successful because of the permafrost. And so we went in there and drilled four holes over this anomaly that, that also had some geophysics um, overlaying it. Uh, this anomaly is about 700 meters in length and about 200 meters wide um, with, with a silver of around one ounce per ton in the soils and about a half a percent zinc. So, so a very strong signature and uh, those assays are still pending. So what will you, uh, and so with regard to the Yukon, what will you be doing? I suppose you'll be in the bro- process of setting up your, your drill programs uh, and then you'll let the let us all know what you're planning to do there, or, or do you know already? Well, we know that we're going to have a very aggressive drill program uh, on the saddle Egger zone over that two-kilometer area. It's mm-hmm. still open in length and depth. And uh, we want to we want to put enough drill holes in there to put a maiden resource out at the end of the year. So wow. we're talking, okay. you know, a minimum of ten thousand meters, and possibly twenty thousand meters just on that target, which is a tiny portion of our district scale property that is three hundred seventy six square kilometers. I mean, it's just there's so much potential on that on the RC Gold property. This is just one of many targets that we want to follow up with. But this is this is shaping up much faster than we anticipated with these results. Well, that sure sounds exciting. Um, then with respect to Burrow Creek, um, what do you have in store for there? That's your most advanced project yeah, at this Burrow stage. Creek, um, we completed 10 drill holes and, and completed those in April this year. And uh, that was successful in proving that the Burrow Creek vein, which hosts the, the historical deposit, continues to the south um, for what we believe is at least a, a kilometer and a half or a mile. And we, we stepped out and fenced our holes right to the end of the patented property. And, and then uh, uh, we're in the process of permitting for the, with the BLM to continue fencing out the other about a kilometer left to drill there. So that was very successful too, and some of the results we got were were uh, uh, definitely exactly what we would have expected being the Burrow Bay, and we had like 41 meters of 1.15 grams per ton gold and 51.3 grams per ton silver, um, and in there's a high-grade component in this deposit too, like we had one hole that ran 1.07 meters of 17.55 grams per ton gold and 33 grams per ton silver. So, so we're very pleased with what we've um, accomplished down there uh, at our Arizona property to date, and we're anxious to get going and, and step out and, and show that this deposit, this historical deposit of 5 million ounces of silver and 120,000 ounces of gold could be much larger, and, mm-hmm. uh, and we want to be able to do that and then, and then do a resource calculation based on our, our new drilling. And you mean by next year, or would it be in 2023 when you do the resource? We're hoping to get our permits and be drilling down there this winter, and that would that would enable us to, to do a resource calculation uh, probably uh, mid-summer by the time mm-hmm. we get our results done. So we're, that is our, our flagship property because it already has a foundation of, of a deposit there uh, in from the past. I mean, I was involved with that in 1988, and uh, we had all the permits. We were going to put it in production, and gold was at $400 an ounce. 
uh-huh. and slid off down to 250 and it, and yeah. it got shelved. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, um, it's definitely a lower risk than, than any of our other projects. But um, now RC Gold is starting to kind of nudge up there too where, where obviously we're onto something pretty big there. And then you still have another property, which is uh, more of a, let's say, a, a wild card, or let's say, uh, what, what do you call it? Um, your Alpha Project, which is a Carlin target. And you had a, a deep drill hole that you put down there this year. I believe it sort of wandered off in the wrong direction, perhaps. Um, <laughs> yeah. What, what, we went what, down, what are your, yeah. We went down 1,700 and some feet, or 545 meters, I think. And uh, it was very successful in a lot of ways. It, it proved the structural interpretation that the lower plate carbonates were preserved there. It gave mm-hmm. us anomalous gold with coinciding mercury in several sections of the drill hole that are a Carlin signature. And so we believe that that's leakage from the lower plate carbonate that we were wanting to tap into. And um, that information has been very valuable in helping us uh, pinpoint where we're putting our second drill hole there. And, and you're planning to do that next year? Yes, we're planning on doing that in a few weeks. Uh, is, is, is oh, everything comes good. together. So, uh, oh, oh, uh, yeah, Alpha is a high-risk target, but being right in the Carlin uh, gold belt there, it's, uh, it's, it's just very compelling to, to move forward with that and, and, and test that uh, structural interpretation that we have to date. Give it a shot uh, with at least one drill hole, and then I suppose if if it's successful, you might do more there, I suppose. Absolutely. We've got a permit for 10 drill holes Mm -hmm. um, in place there, and uh, we're expanding on that as well based on the information that we've got to date. So, uh, yeah, that's a a fluid situation, and and like like most exploration uh, programs, you have to be willing to uh, pivot. In, in short order when you're getting getting the right information. And again, that's that's why we're we're gonna be focused pretty strongly on our Yukon R C project uh, come the spring. Mm-hmm. Well there you, it looks like you could really come up with some good some good data there, uh, based on four drill holes and hitting on each one of them and uh, as you've described it over a large target. Go uh, go Go bigger, go home is a is a philosophy of many people that I think more successful people. Looks like you have a chance to go big uh, there for sure, and who knows uh, in in Nevada. Uh, so you have a lot of things going on. How are you financed? Do you are you have enough money to do what you want to do next year, or at least to start the year? We have enough money to do what we want to do in Nevada and Arizona, but obviously a big aggressive program up in the Yukon is going to. Uh, take more money and um, we're looking at different options Um, not just equity financing we're in discussions regarding convertible debt uh, Mm -hmm. uh, pre-royalty sales Um, there's or maybe a combination of all three so so yeah we're going to that's going to be a big program that uh, is going to have to be uh, looked at down the road Uh, we're in the middle of putting our budget together right now on how many drill holes we want to put in that area to to end up with a, um, enough to, to do a maiden resource there. And we need enough money there uh, in that budget to follow up on two other gold discoveries. We made um, one with one of our other drill holes, aside from the Sile area at the Big Creek anomaly, um, 
I've never had a drill hole in that mountain before, and and we ended up with uh, with some gold um, in the in the drill hole that needs to be followed up with. And then uh, another area never had a drill hole, but the soils were strong, and we trenched there, and ended up with seven meters of 0.65 grams per ton gold, which again mm-hmm. is right in the ballpark what what we're looking for for grade uh, based on what uh, is being successfully mined at Victoria Gold uh, mm-hmm. in that in belt right now. All right. We'll have to leave it go at that. Uh, sounds like it's a, a story our listeners are going to want to keep in touch with uh, going forward. So thank you so much, Cor, for being with us, and uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you in the future again sometime soon. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, one thing I did want to mention, though, is... Uh, um, Sitka also has a uh, wholly owned subsidiary called Arctic Copper Corporation. Yes. And we've got our foot in the door with copper up in the Arctic there that uh, um, it's in our, on our website and on our presentation, and it's it's pretty pretty compelling target. Uh, Wonderful. Okay. With, it, with copper. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, we've got, you, a, we've got a lot to watch. Uh, thank you so much, Cor. We, we do have to run now, but thank you so much for giving us this update. It's excellent. Thank All right, folks, you bet. Okay, folks, well, uh, don't go away because Lynn Alden is going to be with me, and uh, she has some really important things to talk about, uh, the U.S. dollar, and uh, a paper she wrote, the frying of the U.S., the fraying, I should say, the fraying of the U.S. global currency reserve system, and uh, very important stuff to, to hear from Lynn Alden, so we'll be right back with her right after the break. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. NV Gold Core, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit NVGoldCore.com to learn more on this exciting story. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times, Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and we're really pleased to have with me once again Lynn Alden. She's uh, certainly become very well known in the financial world. A lot of people uh, paying a lot of attention to her, and for good reason, because she really puts her her skill set uh, as, as an engineer uh, and applies the same kind of critical, logical thinking to finance. And uh, so her work is greatly appreciated by yours truly, and uh, really pleased to have her 
with me again. Uh, it's Lynn Alden, L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N dot com. Uh, go there. There's there's a lot of free things, but uh, she does have a very reasonably priced paid service as well for investors uh, that I highly recommend, uh, and I have taken advantage of myself. So uh, thanks for joining me again, Lynn. It's really it's really a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for having me again. Happy to be here. Oh, it's really good to have you. And um, you, you know, you you really uh, do a, a great job. This this article that I wrote is about. Oh gosh, I guess it's about uh, 50-some pages or so, almost 60 pages or so, called The Fraying of the U.S. Global Currency Reserve System. You know, as, as you point out in your article, a lot of people have been saying for some time, have been harping, or, you know, making sort of shallow claims about the dollar. The dollar's days are over, they're ending, um, the dollar is toast. You know, we've, I, I think I've probably been guilty of saying that sometimes myself as a gold bug. Uh but you point out in your article that there are some issues. I mean, there are really some built-in, um, a built-in atrophy, really. Uh, you know, systems break down in the dollar, the financial system, the monetary system based on the petrodollar. Uh, it's certainly not perfect. It has a lot of flaws, and it's fraying, as you point out. But I'd like to start out by just asking you to explain, you know, how did, how did the dollar how is the dollar referred to as the petrodollar? Uh, sure. So ever since the Bretton Woods system ended uh, in 1971, uh, currencies have been uh, on a free-floating exchange rate. And so uh, basically that, you know, back then, the dollar is backed by gold and then other currencies were, were pegged to the dollar. But when that system broke down, you know, these currencies all became fiat currencies. And then, you know, policymakers had a, had a tough problem on their hands because, you know, there's dollar devaluation, there's, you know, widespread currency devaluation against gold. Uh, and then uh, the United States had energy crises. Uh, and so one of the deals they made, which was that uh, Saudi Arabia would uh, sell their oil uh, only in dollars. Uh, so no matter what country is buying from them, you know, if France buys oil from Saudi Arabia, either even though it's neither of their currencies, they, they pay in the dollar. And then Saudi Arabia would reinvest a lot of those dollars into buying U.S. treasuries. Uh, in exchange for that, the U.S. can provide protection uh, and and various like uh, you know military deals and other sort of lucrative trade, uh, and that extended to to you know most of OPEC. And so we've been in this this nearly 50 year period, where virtually all uh, oil and most other commodities are priced in dollars globally, and that creates a situation where uh, there there's this artificial demand for the dollar because every every country needs dollars. Uh, in order to, uh, you know, uh, procure uh, uh, energy and other commodities. And that's, you know, that's, it was originally uh, described as an exorbitant privilege, right? Because Mm -hmm. the United States uh, could print money and and basically buy commodities uh, in its own currency. And it was the only country that really could do that. Uh, But that also uh, opened up problems. And so if you look at, say, the U.S. trade deficit over the very long term, uh, it completely blew out right after the petrodollar system was uh, created, right after Bretton Woods system ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, because basically there's so much demand for the dollar, uh, and so that that makes it so that our imports, you know, we have a lot of importing power, uh, but it makes our exporting competitiveness pretty weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just, it makes it so that the entire global system is really dependent on one country's currency. And then what's increasingly happening now is that in addition to all these trade deficits really messing up uh, the United States uh, domestic economy, we also have, uh, you know, the fact that you know when this system was developed uh, nearly 50 years ago, the United States was something like 35% of world GDP, and that's declined over time because, of course, we've had the rise of China, we've had the rise of 
various emerging markets. And now the United States is something like 20% of global GDP, uh, but our currency is still you know, pretty much the only currency used for global, global energy pricing. And so it's mm-hmm. basically squeezing the rest of the world. And so we're starting to see alternative payment systems, right? Where So Russia has really spearheaded this, where they are increasingly uh, selling uh, their uh, oil to Europe and to uh, uh, China uh, in euros. Mm-hmm. Right. Russia is doing that. And, of course, uh, not making the United States very happy about that. But uh, I'd like to ask you, why would Saudi Arabia, why do you think Saudi Arabia would make this deal with the U.S.? Was there some sort of an exchange where the U.S. would uh, would ensure the uh, the ruling elite there, the the, uh, the the royal family, perhaps, or, or why did Saudi Arabia agree to do that? I wonder. With the yeah, US. Mainly, mainly that it just established them uh, in the region, uh, and it gave them uh, increased legitimacy and defense, uh, and it also made it so that you know they could more easily ship oil around the world because they basically have the U.S. military, uh, you know, backing their their uh, you know all the supply lines. Mm-hmm. Right, so the U.S. military uh, has been a part of this of this program as well. Then I guess right, and and I think you point out in the article, um, you know, Saddam Hussein uh, decided he wanted to get paid in euros and didn't want to just take dollars. That didn't end too well for him. I think uh, maybe the same thing might have happened in Libya uh, to Gaddafi. Uh, so the U.S. has sort of sort of used its strong military presence around the world to. But to keep open the sea lanes and to uh, ensure that the dollar was continued to be used as a as a reserve currency, so that meant that we could then do what we could create endless amounts of money to finance the empire, to expand the empire, uh, to do what? I mean, I'm I'm much older than you, Lynn, and I remember I'm a young, was a young man during Vietnam, and um, I remember I remember when we went off the gold standard. I re- a young man reading about it in the New York Times and. Uh, 16th of August, uh, 1971, and thinking, why in the world would other countries accept this? And um, it, at that time, the United States, you know, was engaging in Vietnam, the the, the war, and Lyndon Johnson had his Great Society program. All of that was going to cost a lot of money, and how do we pay for it? Well, the politicians weren't going to taxes, uh, tell Americans they were going to have to raise their taxes to fight a war on the other side of the world wasn't going to tell us we had to raise our taxes uh, to engage in socialism, which was something, especially back in those days, it was a no-no. Um, so, I mean, I guess it was so that we could just expand. I mean, who benefited from this, I guess, is what I'm getting at. People closest to government, perhaps, the people that had contracts with the military. Why did we? Why did the United States feel like we had to, you know, to, to become this great empire? Yeah, the overall system is really beneficial, uh, mainly to people uh, towards the, the top of the income ladder or the, mm-hmm. the political ladder. And so it was beneficial to government. It was beneficial to major corporations, uh, globalization, all of that. Uh, and the, the primary uh, you know, uh, people that, that really suffered from it uh, were you know, parts of the middle class, especially people that work in manufacturing and other sort of you know, kind of hard uh, asset type of work. And so basically, in order to make sure that there's a lot of dollars out in the world, uh, the United States basically runs these really persistent trade deficits ever since the mid-70s. Uh, and so basically, we, we've outsourced a lot of our supply chains uh, to China, to Europe, to Japan. And so it's not just a develop, 
developed market to emerging market phenomenon because many other developed markets like Japan and Germany have not experienced this to the same degree that the United States has. It's really been uh, highly uh, tied to our petrodollar system. And mm-hmm. you know, back then, I mean, we were we were in uh, Cold War, and so I've seen some analysts make the argument that say back then it could have made more sense because it, you know, it, it 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 increased. You know, basically we sacrificed some degree of domestic vibrancy for you know basically what what you can refer to as an empire. Uh, mm-hmm. We basically extended our hegemonic reach, mm-hmm. and so that that had various trade offs back then. It had some pros, it had some cons, depending on what side uh, of that equation you were on. Uh, but now it's at the point where it's not even really serving the hegemonic benefits anymore, and some of those downsides have gotten really big. And one mm-hmm. thing I point out in the article is that China, uh, for example, has been using the, the petrodollar system against us as well. So in addition to some of these countries beginning to uh, go around the system and use uh, you know non-dollar payment systems for, for energy, some of them have also been been really uh, you know benefiting. Uh, you know, with mercantilist uh, policies uh, f- from this, uh, you know, the way the system's currently structured. Uh, and so it's really not even benefiting the U.S. anymore, uh, let alone, uh, you know, the U.S. middle class that it's been hurting for a while. Right. The U.S. middle class has been hurting for a while. Coming from Ohio, where I come from, my father was a machinist uh, in around Canton, Ohio, the northeastern part of Ohio. I remember in the 60s and the 50s, especially as a young kid, uh, how we were very optimistic about things in that part of the world, that the St. Lawrence Seaway had just been developed, and, well, we were going to be almost like a coastal uh, region of the country, but then uh, things changed as with this uh, monetary system, and uh, the Rust Belt, or the middle America, the people that actually produce things, I like to say the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors, maybe the farmers, not as much, but people that actually do things seem to have gotten hurt very badly, and I would suggest that that's one of the reasons that Donald Trump was elected, was this idea that maybe somehow that part of the country could be brought back again. Uh, but uh, it, doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be happening as long as... Well, here's the thing. I want to ask you about uh, Robert Triffin. If you could explain to our listeners a little bit about Triffin's dilemma. and Because uh, you talk about the atrophy that's built into this petrodollar system. Uh, maybe just talk a little bit about that, if you would, Lynn. Yeah, so Robert Triffin was an economist, and so back back when the Bretton Woods system uh, was constructed, there were some economists, including him from the beginning, that said the system would ultimately fail. And uh, basically what he pointed out is that, uh, you know, that the United States would run, uh, you know, uh, uh, capital account issues. And so basically what would happen is that the United States only had so much gold. They, they had a tremendous amount of gold. Uh, but the amount of uh, uh, liabilities on that gold, because dollar was convertible to gold for foreigners, uh, and so uh, as the foreign official sector had more and more dollars, uh, they they redeemed those for gold, and eventually our gold reserves were no longer enough to satisfy our liabilities, especially mm-hmm. because, as you pointed out, in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, they were engaging in, in pretty big deficits for, for mm-hmm. wars and for domestic programs, and so that made... Uh, the, the gold standard, uh, you know, really hard to maintain, and eventually, basically, the foreigner sector uh, called the bluff on it, and Nixon had to uh, uh, basically end that system because it was no longer mathematically sustainable. Now, mm-hmm. s- since that system ended, uh, the Triffin's dilemma has been reapplied to the petrodollar system, and it's basically in this version, uh, it, it goes that you know, in order to uh, you know uh, supply uh, dollars around the world uh, for all of this energy pricing. Uh, there's only really only a couple ways to do it, and the you know the 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 easiest way that it works is that the U.S. ends up running really big trade deficits, and so uh, you know the same kind of uh, flaw that that brought down uh, the Bretton Woods system 
uh, is is you basically manifest again in a slightly different way uh, in the petrodollar system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, it seems to me this notion that you have to have this this enormous uh, export uh, deficit uh, uh, that you have to run these these deficits uh, trade deficits um, that. You know, in order to keep enough liquidity out there to keep the the dollar out there, uh, so that it can be the re- world's reserve currency, it seemed to me when the United States was leading the way with uh, so-called free trade that we were basically cutting our tariffs more than other countries were required to cut theirs, and it seems to me that that may have been a policy measure in order to uh, to retain this this system, but. Uh, I'm not sure if that's if that was intentional or not, but it seems to be what happened. Uh, and again, I think uh, Donald Trump might have been a reaction to that. Uh, so Triffin really sort of saw, or at least as you say, it's being applied now to the petrodollar system. I'd like to ask you, how then is China using? You, you mentioned that China is uh, is now using the petrodollar system against the United States. Maybe you could explain that. Yeah, sure. So uh, basically, the the, the the downside of the petrodollar system for the U.S., as you mentioned, is is those persistent trade deficits. Uh, now, some of the upside for it, uh, while it works, is uh, that foreigners finance uh, part of the U.S. government deficits, uh, which can feel really good while it's happening, and it's been <laughs> happening, and it's been happening for decades. So, you know, an entire generation or two has really benefited from that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in the beginning, our major trade partner was Europe. So, you know, Europe would run really big, uh, you know, trade surpluses with us. They'd get a lot of dollars. And then they'd reinvest a lot of those dollars into uh, holding U.S. Treasuries as their foreign exchange reserves. And so they would basically cycle those dollars back into financing our government deficits. Uh, then with the rise of Japan, uh, you know, th- that, that center of, uh, you know, dollar flow kind of shifted over. And so Japan ran really big uh, trade surpluses with us. Uh, and again, they, they cycled those dollars back into buying Treasuries. Uh, then uh, roughly, you know, about 20 years ago, we, we started to see the sharp rise of China. And so they became the, the ones that, that ran the biggest uh, trade surpluses with us. And again, they, they cycled their, their dollars back into buying treasuries. And they eventually accumulated over a trillion dollars worth of treasuries. Uh, but then in 2013, China said it's really no longer in our best interest to keep buying treasuries. And so we're not going to do that anymore. And then instead, they announced the Belt and Road Initiative, which is basically that they started uh, making dollar loans uh, to developing countries around the world to develop infrastructure uh, or to uh, secure uh, commodity rights, uh, you know, mm-hmm. because China is, of course, a, a very large commodity importer, uh, and is now the the biggest uh, commodity importer. And so, uh, they are still running very large uh, trade surpluses with the United States. Uh, but then they're taking those dollars, and then they're basically securing all their own commodity rights, and and ba- basically buying hard assets around the world rather than recycling those dollars back into buying treasuries. And that's, of course, you know, over time led to, uh, you know, more and more kind of geopolitical conflicts between the United States and China. Uh, and it basically, you know, no one, no one cared as much about the trade deficit uh, many years ago when China was, you know, putting a lot of that, that money back into U.S. deficits and, and mm-hmm. treasuries. Uh, but now, of course, we care a lot more because China is no longer cycling those dollars back into treasuries and they're doing their own thing. And so the United States is really on the, sh- the short end of the stick here, uh, you know, ironically with the system that they constructed all these decades ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, so we've depended on the f- kindness of strangers, as some people have put it in the past, uh, to buy our treasuries. Uh, you know, recycling those those export uh, dollars, those export earnings into the U.S. treasuries, and now 
nobody wants treasuries. I can't blame them. They're paying nothing. They're paying less than nothing, uh, in real terms, at least. Uh, and, you know, we're still dependent on foreigners, except now the central bank has to step in and start to buy our treasuries because no one else wants them, right? I mean, there's some pension funds and the like that have to buy some. But for the most part, it doesn't make a lot of sense to go buy treasuries now. And so people are, are buying stuff. They're buying tangibles, I think, more investors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There, I mean, there's still some demand for treasuries. It's, it's you know, uh, the, some institutions have to use it for collateral. Uh, and if you look at Japanese investors, for example, uh, they, you know, they pay close attention to FX hedged treasury yields compared to, uh, you know, their own government bond yields. Uh, and so there, there's kind of this demand around the margin, uh, but it's just not enough demand to keep up with a massive amount of new supply. And so uh, foreign holdings of treasuries have been relatively flat over the past year. Uh, even though uh, U.S. supply of those treasuries has has ballooned by trillions of dollars, and so uh, the Federal Reserve has become the largest buyer, and now now actually the Federal Reserve holds more treasuries than all uh, foreign central banks combined. Mm. Wow! Uh, and so that basically is I, I've used the analogy like we're a restaurant that you know where the the cook is eating eating her own cooking more than her customers are. <laughs> Not a good situation. And China, on the other hand, uh, I mean, we owe all this money to other countries yet, other countries that are holding treasuries. And China, though, isn't in the same position. I think they are not beholden to other countries so much, right? If anything, yeah. they're a... Yeah, so they are a net uh, creditor nation, meaning exactly. they own... Exactly, as they we were own. at one point. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and so just with a couple of minutes left here yet, uh, Lynn, I would like to just mention to Alistair McLeod's article... The next dollar problem has just arrived. I don't know if you happen to read Alistair or if you follow his work at all. But he's pointing out that in the last two weeks, we've seen M1 increase by 14%. That's not 14% per annum. That's 14% in two weeks. And he's pointing out that that has come at the expense of M2, which he says is largely because banks uh, aren't lending money now. Banks are afraid to lend money. The economy is not reviving as they had expected it would shortly after COVID sprung up. Uh, and Alistair is really concerned that we could see a disintegration of the dollar fairly quickly. I don't know to what extent, with say, with a minute left, uh, you might share those concerns or not. I, I think it's something to watch. I mean, I, I, as you correctly pointed out, that that was mostly a shift from uh, M2 to M1, and so uh-huh. you know, it's basically uh, you know, instead of savings accounts, it's, it's been in, in demand deposits, like checking accounts. Uh, and so it's something to watch. Ironically, in the near term, that can potentially strengthen the dollar because if yeah. uh, if banks are not lending dollars, uh, then it's harder to get dollars. And as uh, we've talked about in previous uh, mm-hmm. discussions, uh, the foreign sector has a lot of dollar-denominated debt as well as dollar-denominated assets. And so whenever the dollar gets really tight, uh, sometimes you get this mad rush into dollars as a safe haven. So mm-hmm. uh, in the near term, that could ironically potentially give it a little increase. And in fact, in the last couple of days, we have seen a little bit of a bounce in the dollar index. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I'm mostly focusing on the long term rather than you know what might happen over a three to six month period. Mm-hmm. Well, there was so much more I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I'm sorry we don't have time. Um, certainly, I, I know you're, you're gold. You're into, you're into Bitcoin. Uh, you do put out a newsletter uh, and people can learn to know a very reasonably priced newsletter as well. And people can learn to know what you're doing and what you're advising. Uh, your clients to do. So I want to thank you so much, Lynn, for being with us. Always a pleasure. It's always enlightening and very helpful for our listeners. So thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You bet. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week. Next week, Charles Hugh Smith will be my main guest, and we'll also be talking to Jim Gregg of Benchmark Metals. So until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. 
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 